for the rest of us, we're going to continue our study of the words of Solomon. We've, we've looked at Proverbs and we've looked at the Song of Solomon, that great book of romance, uh, and we're going to kind of close out this month with some words from the book of Ecclesiastes, and as the Lord would have it, uh, some of our life groups happen to be uh, embarking on a study of Ecclesiastes at this same time, so uh, perhaps God is trying to really drive something home, because I had selected uh, this part of the series for my uh, sermon prep all the way back at the 1st of January and kind of knew where I was going with this, uh, but I did not know that our life groups would be also studying, or some of our life groups would be studying Ecclesiastes as well. So if you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, looking at the satisfied life, the satisfied life. Now, if you're here this morning as we stand in honor of reading God's Word, before we read, if you're here this morning And you would say, Pastor Robbie, like Solomon, I pray for wisdom, but I'm one of those that I have to learn some things the hard way. Would you just raise your hand? I have to learn things the hard way. All right, there's a few people that can be uh, stubborn like me, right? Now, how many of you would say, well, that's not me, but that is my spouse or my child, right? No, I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. Uh, Get you in trouble already, right? And just try to be sure that we can do some marriage counseling using the stuff we covered the last couple of weeks. Um, Solomon and all of his wisdom that God blessed him with and all that he experienced as a result of that had to learn some things the hard way. And uh, we'll read about that in Ecclesiastes, but we'll also learn how the gospel impacts that big time this morning. As we look at a reason to live in Ecclesiastes chapters 1 through 3, I'm just going to read verses 16 through 18 in chapter 1. After debating this within himself... Solomon says, I said to myself, look, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all of those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of wind. Warren Wearsby argues that Solomon would have been better off to have asked for goodness than having asked for wisdom, but he was certainly given wisdom. Verse 18, for with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. That's what I get for having wisdom, an increase in grief. We'll see that he's debating some things here, and, and ultimately over this month, we'll see some things that he discovered that you can discover too. And this morning specifically, we'll see that we all have a reason, a purpose, a passion for living. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit be our God and teacher this morning. Help me to preach as if this is the last sermon I would ever preach, and I pray those who hear would listen as if this is the last sermon they're going to hear, and that we would adjust our lives accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. I couldn't help but after reading this passage to think of a story that I shared with the church family years ago when we were looking at a vision for what God might have in store and the importance of the church having vision and and purpose as a God. And I thought this story also relates to uh, perhaps where some of us are when it comes to our own reason for living or maybe those who might become even bored or frustrated with life at times. And it was the story of Larry Walters. Remember the story of Larry Walters? You can look this up later after church on YouTube and um, 
Watch his interview with David Letterman after the fact. It's kind of funny. But Larry Walters was the 33-year-old truck driver that had been sitting around doing zilch, as this article reads, week in and week out. Well, he was preparing for something, it seems. Until boredom got the best of him, that was back in the summer of 1982. He decided enough was enough. What he needed was an adventure. Anybody ever feel that way? Like, man, I just need an adventure. I need to do something. I need to try something. I need to go somewhere. So on July the 2nd, 1982, he rigged 43 helium-filled weather balloons to a Sears lawn chair in San Pedro, California. And the cable that was holding it down eventually snapped as he was sitting in it, armed with a BB gun, says armed with a pellet gun, to shoot out a few balloons should he fly too high. Walters was shocked to reach 16,000 feet. He says in the video he's going 1,000 feet, rising 1,000 feet per minute until he realized he needed to start shooting out one at a time these helium balloons. Uh, surprised pilots reported seeing some guy in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet. They reported that to perplexed air traffic controllers. Now, could you imagine being an air traffic controller? <laughs> and it says, um, there is a, a, a fella in a lawn chair up here with us near uh, Los Angeles International, LAX there. Finally, Walters had enough sense to start shooting the balloons, which allowed him to land safely in Long Beach. Some 45 minutes later, the bizarre stunt got him a Timex ad, as well as a guest spot on The Tonight Show. Ultimately, he quit his job to deliver motivational speeches. (laughs) So maybe a lot of other people were struggled with just sitting there. And, And so ultimately, when asked why did he do such a weird thing, Walters usually gave the same answer. He says, people ask me if I had a death wish. I tell them, no, it was something I had to do. I couldn't just sit there. I had to do something. So if you get bored with life, frustrated with life, if it just doesn't seem like there's any meaning or purpose or challenge big enough, I want to tell you, God has something in store for you other than just going out and getting a bunch of helium-filled weather balloons and uh, ascending to 16,000 feet in a matter of uh, a quarter of an hour. John Phillips, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, says that the value of the book of Ecclesiastes is that it teaches us that only God can satisfy the deepest hungers of the human heart. When it comes to something that we can experience that brings real satisfaction, we only get that through a relationship with God. And Solomon, in this mid to late life crisis, is finding that out. He's discovering some things, and much of it that he learned was not from the the direct wisdom he got from God, but from the school of hard knocks. Now, he refers to himself again and again, depending on your translation, as the preacher or the teacher. The Hebrew word there, the koaleth, means uh, one who is a debater, one who is reasoning. And, And the debate here in the book of Ecclesiastes is with himself. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is recording this for us, but we need to understand what, it, what it is happening here. Some things we read in Ecclesiastes, we can be quick to say um, that is a principle by which to live, and we don't understand that that is an inspired 
truth without any mixture of error, but an inspired truth of a man who is reasoning and, and debating within himself and saying, I thought this and that was wrong, I thought this and it doesn't seem right. And, and so he's working through things, and so the Holy Spirit saw fit to have this placed in Scripture so that we could identify with where he is. And into that, the gospel shines brightly. So this preacher, this teacher, or, or debater, it reveals to us an internal dialogue, wrestling with meaning and purpose, and why am I here, and is there a reason to go on when life gets tough? Any amount of wisdom lacking spiritual truth and divine revelation will leave you miserable. It will bring you to a place of grief and not only make your life grievous, it will make you someone who brings grief and frustration You ever talk to anybody who's educated beyond their intelligence and they just frustrate everybody around them because they can't help, uh, they can't see the gospel that should penetrate all of the wisdom of this world and transcend all of it. And so the thought, the reflection, even the revelation he receives from God in the midst of it gives us about three conclusions we'll see in these chapters and then we'll come back and, and tie it to some more specific areas of life as we continue to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And the first principle or the first conclusion I think he comes to is this. There is an endless cycle to life that leaves you unfulfilled. We could add those words without God right here, but, but just when you look at life in general, from a secular point of view, there is an endless cycle to life that leaves you unfulfilled. In the first couple of verses, he points out the futility, the meaninglessness of life. The words of the teacher, the coalette, the son of David, King in Jerusalem, absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility. Everything is futile. Your translation may say vain, vanity of all vanities. It's worth nothing. What does a man gain for all of his efforts? He gets into the the life that we live of work and and children and and, and living and dying in the next generation. It just all amounts to another day. What does a man gain for all his efforts? His He labors under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. uh, Panting, it returns to its place where it rises. Same old, same old. Life is going through the motions and it doesn't seem to be ending up anywhere. Ultimately, in verses 6 and 7, it seems to amount to making no difference whatsoever. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, Turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. You hear the frustration? What difference does it? All this motion, all this movement, it's all a cycle, and it just really never leads to nothing. The, the streams are flowing to the place, and they flow there again. Nothing is bringing permanent satisfaction. So he concludes in verse 8, all things are wearisome. Man is unable to speak. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. You can't get enough to make sense out of all this or to make any of it seem worthwhile. And even when we think we're smart, even when we think we have wisdom, even when we think we're clever, and even when we brag about human ingenuity and everything else, we we come around to just really getting in a lawn chair and trying to make the best out of what we got, right? Right? What has been is what will be, verse 9 says, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. 
can one say about anything? Look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before. Have you ever thought you had a good idea and you find out that somebody else already had that idea? And he's saying, listen, every idea, every word of wisdom I thought I had, it didn't originate with me. There's nothing new under the sun. He goes on to say, there's no memory for those who came before, and of those who will come after, there will also be no memory among those who follow them. You will be gone and you will be forgotten, he says. Is God just playing a mean trick? That's what it would seem like, verses 12 through 14. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to seek, to explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. God is just playing a a mean trick on people to get them to go through the motions of life, and it never leads to anything or amounts to anything significant. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind, like grasping at the wind, coming up empty-handed. Everything that I thought I had acquired in life was meaningless. And sometimes you find yourself just saying, this isn't as fun as I thought it was going to be. Just get me out of here. I remember as a kid, you know, I I used to think that the Madison County Fair was bigger than life. Anybody think that? You ever ride by and you think, man, was it always this small? Was was this always what what the Madison County Fair? I'm going to get in trouble with somebody with the Lions Club or something. I used to ride by as a kid, though, and think, man, this is bigger than life. This is awesome. And and I would watch this one particular ride, and I thought, one day, man, one day I'm going to get on it. It was called the Bullet, and it just kind of went round and round and spun around and round and round really fast. And, and the only problem with getting on the bullet, I had had some fair food before I got on it. You know, that fair food that smells so good, but you don't really know who sweats in it and that sort of thing. I had eaten some fair food, and I got on the bullet with my friend Todd, and we're on this thing, and we're going round and round and upside down, and everything's trying to come back, and I'm not having any fun whatsoever, and I'm just like, stop it, stop it, I'm going to lose it. You know, and I'm, I mean, when I said lose it, I won't go into details, but I thought they have got to stop this thing and get me off. It's not as fun as I thought it was going to be. Now, I will get on rides at theme parks that go far and fast, but don't put me on a merry-go-round that goes round and round because it shakes you up. And, and I, I just couldn't handle I was like, stop, get me off. And, and I think some people look at life that way as they drive by, as they they look at what life has to offer the things of this world. They're like, man, I want in on that. I want that career. I I want those possessions. And they get caught up in the rat race of life. And it's like being on that bullet. You're going round and around and around and you're sick of it. And you're saying, just get me off. Get me out of this repetitious nothingness that is making me sick. It's better not to have experienced that, many would conclude. Look what he says in verses 15 through 18. I'd been better off if I'd have been naive about life. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have amassed this wisdom. We saw this earlier. That did me no good, right? Verse 17, I applied my mind to to know wisdom, knowledge, madness, and folly. And I learned this too is the pursuit of wind. Why? Because it's meaningless. With much wisdom, the more I knew, the worse I felt. The more I experienced, the more sorrow, the more grief. He says, as knowledge increases, grief increases. Can you imagine? If, you, if all you have is the wisdom of what this world is without God, you would be, as Paul talks about, 
life without the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, we would be of all men most pitiable. We would be so miserable if there's not more to this life than the circles and the cycles that we seem to be going in again and again and again. And so the atheist, the one who says, I'm just going to leave God out of the equation, is basically left with about three options here. If you leave God out of the equation, you can say, I'm going to let my life reflect hopelessness and realize that some will be mature enough to handle it, right? Some will be mature enough to handle the hopelessness of life. It is what it is, what it has been is what will be, and there's nothing really to it. And so let's just eat, drink, and be merry. For many, the depravity of life will be revealed in this because there are no eternal consequences, There's no value in suffering. There's no value in the struggle that is life. There's no purpose in all of that. And folks, that's why we struggle today with uh, the when Congress can't even fight to save a life of a child who has already been born, much less one that is in the womb. When Congress can't even fight to save a life that's been born, they're saying life is meaningless anyway. Doesn't really amount to anything. It doesn't really matter. And I'll tell you, if they don't value that life, they won't value your life either. Euthanasia, terror. Why can people commit some of the terrorist acts? Why can people commit crimes against others? Because there is no value, no purpose in life, no eternal consequences. What has been is what will be. And, you know, it's not like they're going to school now and seeing the Ten Commandments anymore and being reminded that there is a creator who they will stand before one day who has said, by the way, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you <laughs> shall not bear false witness. You know, you, you don't have that anymore because this world does not value life as it should. And so if you can, if you're looking at this without God, you can let your life reflect that hopelessness. The second choice would be for the atheist to embrace secular humanism, to worship self, to say, okay, well, if this is all there is, then the highest knowledge and wisdom of all the creatures is mankind, and humanity, we've got to make better. Mankind, the humanist would argue, is evolving and getting better and getting better, and and one day we will kind of have arrived, and, and the whole world will just love each other and get along. Does it seem to you like we're moving in that direction? It doesn't to me. Not in this nation and not anywhere around the world. But that's all you're left with, with with those two choices. Or a third one, and third one you would be surprised at the crowd that's involved here. It's what we would call religious existentialism. It's those who deny the supernatural part of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God, but they realize that religion makes people better, so they, they build this false dichotomy. They said, look, on the one hand, we know that in, in, in the science class, there really is no God and all of this stuff just kind of, you know, two, two, um, two, two atoms bumped into each other at some point and there was this explosion and everything came into being. It's all meaningless, but we know on the other hand that we have a desire to have a religious experience and it sure does make people behave better and you would be amazed, church, at the number of pastors that do not truly believe in a literal physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, nor do they believe in a literal bodily return of Jesus Christ one day. They don't believe hell is real. They don't believe heaven is real. They just believe that religion makes us better people. And so they buy into this religious existentialism and they say, look, don't push your beliefs on anybody else just so it makes you better. That's okay. And that's what we're struggling with 
in the world today. Those are the options if you leave God out of the equation. And so we try to escape this. And the second thing that I think Solomon learns that he comes to this conclusion I want you to see this morning is there are escape strategies that will leave you more depressed and discouraged. If getting caught up in the cycle of life in and of itself without God, it's left you feeling like life is meaningless and and all is vanity, then these escape strategies, what people do to try to get away from that, will take you to an even darker place, a more discouraging and depressing place. So avoiding the lies of humanism and hypocrisy that we see in existentialism, this world only has so much to offer. What does it have to offer? We'll see this in chapter 2, but John in his letters tell us that all that is of the world is what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's all there is. That's all the world has to offer. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. This world without God. And we see the lust of the flesh in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 3. I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure and enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness, and about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind how to let my body enjoy life with wine and how to grasp folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom until I could see what it was good for. People to do, what, what was good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their life, life as Harley pointed out in her life group this morning, life is a vapor, it appears for a moment and then vanishes. And he says, this is just, this is meaningless. It's not lasting. The, the lust of the flesh and fulfilling those desires just lead me into greater bondage. What I was trying to do was escape this, the, the, the depression of this world, and it took me to a deeper, darker place. And so here he was with 700 wives and 300 concubines, and some point out, a 1,000 mothers-in-law, right? So here he is, thinking life was going to be better, and it was worse. And then in verses 4 through 6, we see not only the lust of the flesh, but the lust of the eyes. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs of water for myself for which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. He became well known for those things, everything the eye could desire. Another truth that we saw this morning in life group was that Solomon was known for making silver as common as rocks because of what he had done with gold in this kingdom. Lust of the eyes. And then The pride of life, verses 7 through 9. He says, I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned many herds of cattle, more than all who were before me. We want people to bow down to us and worship us for the power that we've acquired. He says, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. See, it's all kind of coming together here, this 
pride and this lust. He says, thus I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that, and I was the smartest man who ever lived. Now he's not only empty, but the wisdom has made him guilty. He's empty and he's guilty because of his own sins. And while the Holy Spirit is in the world, convicting the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness, you will wonder why people who are getting caught up in certain behavior who don't claim to know the Lord, how do they even sleep at night? Because you know that the Holy Spirit is convicting them of those things that they're doing to hurt themselves and hurt others. Escapist behaviors revealed in desperation. And we see that desperation in verses 10 and 11. He says, all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. If I wanted it, he says, it was mine. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. No self-discipline here. This was my reward for all of my struggles. I deserve this. Isn't that what the pride of life says? You may call it sin, and you may call it abusive behavior. You may call it something that will lead me to bondage, and you may call it something that will destroy my family, but I deserve this. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile. It left me empty. It was the pursuit of wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so all of the understanding that he had psychologically, sociologically, you know, all of the psychology and sociology still leave you more depressed. They look for ways to excuse behavior or normalize behavior or sometimes blame others. When you leave the gospel and when you leave God out of the equation, excuse behavior, blame others for behavior or normalize the behavior. And say, hey, you're just normal. It's okay to have those sinful passions, sinful desires. And it may be normal, but it's a normal part of a sin-fallen world from which we need to be redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we can't excuse behavior, normalize it, or just blame others. As the secular psychologist would tell you. I read about one man who, he, he said, I went to see the same psychologist for 12 years because he was such a good listener. And I was talking through all of my problems. It cost me $50,000. I, I invested $50,000 to this psychologist over a 12-year period. And finally, after 12 years of being a good listener, he finally spoke. And I thought, man, it's going to be words of wisdom. And those words that that psychologist spoke brought tears to my eyes. And his friend said, he spoke words after 12 years and it brought tears. What did he say? He said that my psychologist looked at me and said, after 12 years and $50,000, no hablo inglés. And some of us feel like that's the advice. That's the only thing we're getting from this world. They don't understand who we are. They don't understand the human mind, heart, or soul like Jesus, like the gospel, like the God that we serve. So you can't leave God out of the equation or you will be a hopeless product of your environment. You will blame it on the teacher. Do we have any teachers here? Do you ever get blamed for stuff by parents? It's the teacher's fault, right? Or the teachers may say it's the parent's fault, <laughs> The worker says it's the boss's fault. The boss says it's my employee's fault. We blame it on the neighborhood or 
the family or sometimes the lack of a good neighborhood and a good family. We don't take personal responsibility and we leave the gospel and its hope out of the equation. We blame it on guns and television and video games, but we never take personal responsibility. That's the hopelessness without the gospel. We have to excuse it, normalize it, or blame it on others. In verses 12 through 17, we see that the philosophy psychology leaves you hating life when you leave the gospel of Jesus Christ out of it. Look at verse 12. He says, I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man be like who comes after the king? He will do what has already been done. And I realize that there is an advantage to wisdom over folly like the advantage of light over darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I also knew that one fate comes to both of them. The wise man and the fool, what happens to both? They both die, do they not? So I said to myself, what happens to the fool also happened to me. And so being wise, having amassed all that I've amassed, you know, there's a a statistic out when it comes to death, one out of every one die. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And so he's learning that here. Why then have I been overly wise? Why did I spend all this time gaining knowledge and all of these things? What do they matter for me? He says, and I said to myself, this too is futile, vain, empty. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man. See, I'll be forgotten and gone is what Solomon is saying. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon's story would be recorded for us forever. But he's going to bring God into the equation. Hang, hang in there. If, I'm, if you're sitting there this morning, you're going, okay, well, you've made me feel really good about life. Hang in there. We're, we're getting there. He says, look, there's no lasting remembrance since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise man dies just like the fool? Therefore, I hated life. I hated life. I think probably the majority of us, the, probably the overwhelming majority of us can think of a time that we were farther from God than we've ever been. And if you really think about it in that moment, you started hating life. You started hating life. Because of the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for everything is futile and the pursuit or grasping of wind. It's not lasting. Now, here's the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ does speak into this. And everything that the Old Testament was looking forward to, wrapped up in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, is what we have the privilege of looking back on. And so you need to understand that even there is a revealed glimpse of this in the book of Ecclesiastes, when you see in our third conclusion this morning, there are eternal purposes in life that do lead to satisfaction. You do not have to leave this morning feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied with life. You can find purpose and meaning that makes all the difference in the world. After trying to discuss meaning and debate this in life and work and what everything would come to, when we come down to verse 24 in chapter 2, he says, There is nothing better for man than to eat, drink, and to enjoy his work. I've seen that even this is from God's hand. So that much of what we do in life and going through the motions finds its meaning in the fact that it comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Verses 25 and 26 remind us that those who have a relationship with God have an eternal purpose. 
because he's the one who redeems life from hell and destruction and gives it meaning and purpose. He says, for who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? That's a rhetorical question. The answer, church, is nobody. Nobody can truly enjoy life apart from God. For to the man who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom. So to the one who has found favor, the one who's experienced grace, the one whose sins are forgiven and he's made right with God, he now has real wisdom, right? Knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give it to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. In the end, it is all God's and will all be uh, given to us to be stewards of in his kingdom. And he says, but for the ones who don't know God, what this too is futile in the pursuit of win. To truly escape from the monotony of life. And you talk about the monotony of life. Now, I realize in chapter 3, these words are words to, you know, uh, a famous song from the 60s or 70s. I can't remember. Turn, turn, turn. Remember the song. And they pull from it. And you're like, man, they're biblical. But they, they, they make beautiful what, what Solomon is seeing is very frustrating. What Solomon is trying to say in these verses is, look, there's occasion for everything. Chapter 3 and verse 1. And, and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. He's not waxing eloquent with beautiful words. He's, he's being frustrated here that we're just going through the motions. We're weeping and then we're laughing and then we're mourning and then we're dancing and then we're throwing stones and then we're gathering the stones. We're embracing And then we're avoiding embracing, we're searching, and counting things that are lost, we're keeping, we're throwing away, it's going through the motions. Nothing ever amounts to anything. A time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, and a time to love, and a time to hate, and a time for war, and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his struggles? Verse 9 says, I've seen the task that God has given people to keep them occupied. And again, without the gospel, it still seems like a mean trick from God. He has made everything appropriate or beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But man cannot discover the work God has done from the beginning to the end. He's saying, without divine revelation of God, there's something inside the heart and the soul of man that says, man, I've got to be living for more than this. There's got to be more to this life, as Stephen Curtis Chapman sings, than living and dying, more than just trying to make it through the day. There's got to be more than this. He says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all of his efforts. I know that all God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. God works so that we will stop and say, I want my life to count for eternity, and therefore I want to live my life to the glory of God. Those who have a relationship with God have eternal redemptive purposes. Those who miss out on that pursue 
the lust of this world like a dog chasing the garbage truck. I remember my dog used to chase a couple of things. The one was the garbage truck and one was UPS. I used to say that a, a dog would chase a truck like that, like a teenage boy chases after girls. He didn't really think about, what if I catch one? <laughs> and, and so we chase after things. The, the garbage truck full of garbage and we run with passion and, and, and with great pursuit, and it becomes meaningless. And he says, until you bring the eternal purposes. And see, then wisdom and wealth and those things that God would bless you with in this life now become meaningful because they have a redemptive purpose. You can use that wisdom. You can use those blessings. You can endure suffering. And you can know what it's like to go without, all for the glory of God. You can say, whatever state I am in, whether I'm in plenty or in poverty, I can do this for the glory of God. We were made to pursue something. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, Seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. And so to keep from running in circles in this life, we have to be running after God at all times. We have to be in pursuit of a greater relationship with Jesus Christ at all times. And only in that will we find true satisfaction. Only in that will we find meaning in everything else. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. And I want to read these verses in closing because I think it reminds us of what the gospel does to everything that we're involved in every day of our lives. After he talks about the home and he gets into the workplace, Paul tells the church at Colossae, whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. That's what brings meaning. And so when Solomon is debating all this, he goes, I begin to recognize there are some things that come from God. And ultimately, it's to bring us to the place to do what we learned early in Proverbs, to stand in awe of who God is and say, God, you mean you would use me? You would bless me? You would walk through with me through seasons of brokenness? And you would use me as a channel of blessing to bring encouragement and hope in this world because we're living for something that's bigger than this endless cycle, this roller coaster of the world zone. We're, we're living for the glory of God. In the midst of that cycle, God sent his son, Jesus, the one that the Old Testament longed for, the one the New Testament celebrates, that Jesus stepped into that cycle. And the true escape is to take him by the hand and say, Lord, Let's do life together. I want to live for your glory. I want to experience redemption and forgiveness of sin and and the guilt that being separated from God brings on me. And I want to experience abundant life, full and meaningful life in you. Anybody frustrated this morning? Anybody get tired of the circle of life? There's probably somebody in a crowd this side. You're you're struggling with depression, discouragement, 
You're asking, why am I going through this? Why is life this tough? And only the gospel can give meaning and hope and purpose to what you're going through. Others of you would say, listen, I've discovered that in, in, in receiving the blessings God has poured out on me, they too run out. They don't satisfy unless I use them for his glory. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes this morning?